Amen. You can have a seat, everyone. Thank you so much, worship team. Uh, such great uh, song choices today that just fit perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today and in this series. Uh, good morning, by the way. It's great to have you with us today. And uh, we are beginning today a study in Colossians, the book of Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And uh, we're really excited to see what God does uh, in us as he teaches us through this book in the coming couple of months. Uh, so this, uh, this series we've titled, Jesus is Greater. Jesus is Greater. And uh, that, that phrase, that theme has just kind of been on my mind and on my heart uh, throughout the week as I've been preparing to kick us off today uh, and, and intro this, uh, this book and this series. And so I was thinking about Jesus is Greater. And uh, the other night I was in downtown Loveland with my girls. They dance at Lighthouse Dance in downtown Loveland, which we love. The Holman family runs Lighthouse Dance, and they love their time down there. And I have uh, my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter, and we're waiting for the other two to finish uh, with their class. And uh, so we're kind of just killing time trying to figure out what we're going to do, and, and we're just hanging out in downtown. It was a beautiful day. And I looked down the street, and my eyes caught the beautiful sights of Mary's Mountain Cookies, right? Mary's Mountain Cookies. Uh, it's amazing. It's just right down the street from Lighthouse, and they know my name in there. I go so often, <laughs> they literally know my name and, like, my favorite cookies. It's great. So, so I saw it, and I'm like, I told my 8-year-old and my 2-year-old, you know, like, why don't, why don't we just walk down there, you know, and just see what they have, you know, which, of course, my eight-year-old and, and two-year-old daughter, they're all for this, right? They're on board. So, um, so we walked down there, and spoiler alert, they had cookies, right? And they were amazing, the incredible cookie options. So, of course, we pick out a couple of cookies, and we walk outside. We sit on a bench outside of the, the store, and we enjoy our treat. Uh, and as we're eating, I, I, I just I had this idea idea, this theme. I was thinking about Colossians in my brain, and so I just decided to ask my eight-year-old this question. I said, is Jesus greater than cookies? Is Jesus greater than cookies? I wanted to see what her response would be. And to her credit, she had a great response. She said, of course Jesus is better than cookies, right? And I was like, well, why? And she said, dad, cookies can't save your life, right? <laughs> cookies can't save your life, I was like, they can enhance your life, though, I feel like, right? But, but she's right. Cookies can't save your life. Uh, cookies can't do for us what Jesus can do for us. She understood that. And so, yes, Jesus is greater than cookies. But I was thinking about it. Had we walked over to Mary's Mountain Cookies and walked in and smelled the smells and saw the sights and, and then just walked out the door without a cookie, it might have been a little bit more difficult for my girls to remember that Jesus is greater than cookies, right? There probably would have been some complaining. There would have been some tears. There would have been some frustration. And that would have just been from me, probably, right? Like, not even my daughters. I would have been frustrated, right? Because here's the thing. We know this to be true. Jesus is greater. Like, we know it academically. We know it theologically. We know it intellectually. 
if I passed out a survey this morning with a bunch of things listed in our lives and our world and said, is Jesus greater than these things? Is Jesus greater than, than our jobs or our money or our possessions or, or whatever it might be? We would all say yes, right? Hopefully, all of us would say yes. Jesus is greater than each of these things. But where it gets harder is when we're challenged, when things get taken away from us, when life doesn't go the way we'd expect it to, when following Jesus is difficult, that's when it's harder to remember and really believe in our hearts that Jesus is greater. That is the question that the Apostle Paul addresses in this book, this letter to the Colossians. As we're going to see today, this is a group of people, this is a church that is struggling to remember that needs the reminder that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is enough, that the gospel is, has all the answers that they need. They don't need to look anywhere else. This is the main idea at the center of what we're going to look at today and throughout this series. This is our main idea. Jesus is greater, and because Jesus is greater, he transforms how we live. Jesus is greater, and because he is greater, he transforms the way we live. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of look at an overview of this book. Uh, I've got two verses to unpack today, um, but we're going to look uh, kind of at the themes of the book and some of the who, what, and why. And we're going to look at these four questions. I've got four questions for us to consider as we begin this study in Colossians. So if you have your Bibles with you today, let's open up to the book of Colossians. It's the 12th book in the New Testament. We're going to bounce around a little bit. We're going to look at the book of Acts as well here in just a moment. But open up to the book of Colossians, and we'll have the text on the screen as well. So the first thing that we see in this letter is that Paul writes to the Colossians from a place of transformation. That's the first point on your note sheet this morning. Paul writes from a place of transformation. And we see that right off the bat in Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. So let's read those first two verses together. Paul writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a typical uh, opening to one of Paul's letters and each of his uh, letters to the church in the New Testament. He starts with this uh, greeting to the church, this introduction of who he is and what his message is all about. And, and, and we see him introduce himself here as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And most of us know the story of Paul, right? Most of us know about the apostle Paul. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books all of these letters to the various churches and the early church and the leaders of those churches. But Paul was not always the Apostle Paul. If you remember the backstory, you know that he was once Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish zealot. He was rising in the ranks of the Pharisees as a young man. And after the resurrection of Christ and the rise of the church, Saul is at the forefront of persecuting the followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, we have this incredible account of Stephen. It's one of my favorite 
uh, stories in the Bible, which is sort of weird because it ends with a murder, but it's just a powerful uh, testimony in this example of Stephen. He's this young man, this follower of Jesus who, who uh, gets in an argument with some of the Jewish leaders and high priests. And, and so Stephen makes this epic speech in Acts chapter 7, and he outlines the history of God's people of Israel and God's faithfulness to them, generation after generation, and yet how the people have continually turned away from God. And it leads to the culmination of that message where Stephen makes it clear that the Jews had not only missed the Messiah, Jesus, they had crucified him. Understandably, the leaders are not happy about this. They are angered by this, and they stone Stephen to death. And at the end of this story in Acts chapter 7, we see some witnesses of this murder bring the garments, probably the bloodied garments of Stephen, and they lay them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here we're introduced to this man named Saul. This is what Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 says. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So as we begin our study in Colossians, we need to remember that Saul wasn't just a man who was lost, who didn't know Jesus. He was a man who was actively and violently opposed to Jesus and to his followers. He was a man that stood by and approved of Stephen's death, a man who ravaged the church. But here in the first two verses of Colossians, Paul reminds his readers and reminds us of the incredible transformation that has taken place in his life. We read about that transformation in Acts chapter 9, right? We see Saul traveling to the city of Damascus, and on the way, Jesus appears to him, and he's blinded with heavenly light. He's blind for three days until God sends a man named Ananias to go and pray for him and lay hands on him, and when he does, Saul regains his sight and is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Acts 9, verses 19 through 22 says. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Later, we see Saul begin going by his Roman name of Paul. He is a new man. He has been completely transformed by Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he's proclaiming the very message that he's been violently opposed to. There's only one way this happens. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the transformational work of God in his life. 
This is how Paul can say in Colossians 1.1 that he writes as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It is a, a sovereign, supreme, miraculous work of God in his life that has brought him where he is and made him who he is. This is our vision statement as a church. We want to follow Jesus together to see kingdom transformation in our lives, church, and world. We want you, if you come to Redemption Church, if you're a part of Redemption Church, we don't want you to stay the same. We believe as we follow Jesus, we should be transformed as individuals so that we're transformed as a church so that we can be a part of seeing our world, our culture transformed. That's what we want to see. That's what we're striving for. And Paul is the poster child for kingdom transformation. He's been completely made new. And so when he writes to us about being transformed, about being made new, as we see his call to walk in this new life of Christ, it's not just simply words. It's a genuine testimony of what's taken place in his life. So here's the first question for us as we begin this study. Where have you seen kingdom transformation in your life? Where have you seen transformation? I think about the testimony of Paul uh, as, as these Jewish leaders are seeing him in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Like, what? Like, is this guy have a twin brother? Like, this can't be the same man, right? And as you look back in your life, I, I, hopefully we all have stories of, of the transformation that's taken place in our lives because we've trusted in Jesus. We've surrendered to his authority in our lives. But I think something happens over time as we follow Jesus, maybe for years or decades for some of us, that, that we're still trusting in him, we, we believe in him, and, and we're doing some of the right things, but we're not seeing transformation in our lives. We still need transformation. I believe God still is desiring to shape us always, to sanctify us, to make us look more like Jesus. So where have you seen transformation? And maybe where is an area in your life that you're needing transformation? And I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves, to ask the Lord as we begin this study, because Paul is going to remind us time and time again that God is a God of transformation. That's the work that he does. This leads us to the, the second thing that we see in this book is that Paul writes to the Colossians to address a culture of confusion. A culture of confusion. Paul, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, this letter is to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. This letter was written to the church at Colossae. And by the way, um, some people pronounce it Colossae, Colossae. You can say it either way. Um, so I may say it both ways today, but, but don't get tripped up on that. Uh, it was likely written around 61 AD, and Paul is currently in house arrest in Rome as he writes this letter. He also, in this introduction, you see in verse 1, he acknowledges Timothy, uh, kind of his, his protege and his brother in Christ that he's writing alongside as, as a greeting from the church leaders. And Paul had actually never been to the church in Colossae. He never sets foot in this church. It was most likely established by a man named Epaphras, who we're going to hear more about later in the book. But Paul feels this responsibility for this church and the other churches that have resulted from his missionary work that we read about in the book of Acts. 
The gospel has been spread. These churches have been established like the one in Colossae. And, and by the way, the existence of this and Paul's other letters to the early church, it's proof that the early followers of Jesus took the mission of Jesus seriously. Nate showed us that last week at the end of, of, of his Easter message, the, the great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. This is the work of the early church, and it's happening. The gospel is going out. Disciples are being made. Churches are being established. So let's look at this city of Colossae and what the church is facing. And um, who knows what uh, Rick Steves, who knows who Rick Steves is? And the Rick Steves European, yeah, fantastic. If you don't know who Rick Steves is, you got to check it out. It's like PBS Tours of Europe, okay? If you don't fall asleep in the first 15 minutes, you're like, you're in there and you're like, you're just, you're, you're there in Europe with Rick, who I was like, is he still alive? People said he's still alive. All right, all right. Rick is still alive. He's still going. So go watch some Rick Steves, right? And he takes you on these tours of Europe and he shows you all these amazing places. So I'm going to put on my Rick Steves hat today, okay? And try not to put you to sleep. But we're going to learn just a few things about the city and people of Colossae. Because it really, I think, gives us some important context for this letter. So we have a map up here that shows you where Colossae was. It's a city about 100 miles inland from the significant port city of Ephesus. It's where the Church of Ephesians is. And uh, it was a significant city for, for a long, long time. It was on the road between uh, important cities. And um, it was known for its farming and its trade specifically of wool. It was a very successful city for a long time, but by the time Paul writes this letter, the city had undergone a sort of recession. It wasn't quite at the same height that it once was. It had endured two different earthquakes in the span of about 50 years. So there had been destruction. The city was smaller and less important than it used to be. It was sort of overshadowed by these uh, nearby cities, Laodicea, which you see there, Hierapolis as well. Um, which isn't on that map. But it was kind of losing its prestige and its significance. But one important thing to note with Colossae and the surrounding area is that it was known as a place of spiritual healing. It was a place that people would go to find spiritual answers, to seek spiritual truth. In fact, the waters in the Lycus River which runs next to Colossae, are still to this day considered to be therapeutic and healing. People travel from, from far off, probably on Rick Steves tours, to go to the, the waters near Colossae. They believe there's this spiritual power there. We have a, a picture. Um, I think our first picture actually is of probably what the city, um, near where the city would have been, kind of close to the mountains, beautiful, lush area. And then the next picture, we have a picture of modern day. This is in Hierapolis, which is close by, and the healing waters there of the Lycus River that still to this day people go to bathe in for healing. It's a place of spiritual seeking and truth that people would go to. And, and because of that, because of the diverse beliefs that were present here, there was great pressure on the Colossians 
to turn away from the truth, to embrace the culture and its beliefs and rituals. There were two main religious approaches at the time in Colossae. The first was syncretism, which is the reconciliation or fusion of differing systems of belief. Basically, we're going to take a few different beliefs, a few different uh, religions and traditions, we're going just, to just mush them together, right? We're going to try to put the parts together that we like. So we might take some of Christianity and, and the teachings of this Jesus, but we're going to combine it with other things. The other uh, approach that was common in this culture was asceticism, which is religious self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Basically, we could call this legalism. And we're going to see Paul in this letter address uh, the temptation that the Colossians have to turn back to the old Jewish law and traditions, to submit themselves to the law once again. Either way, we can see from Paul's letter that he was dealing with a defective view of the gospel. There was a growing sense in this church, in this culture, that maybe Jesus and his work on the cross just wasn't enough that maybe we need to add to or subtract from the gospel. This is why he writes in Colossians 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Simply put, the Colossians were living within a complex and confusing culture. Does any of this sound familiar to you? It's kind of amazing in studying this week and learning more about Colossae. I mean, you see the pictures and you think about a place that people would come for healing and something in the water, right? And like this place of of searching for people. Kind of think of Colorado, right? Even Loveland, And you think about this culture that has all these different beliefs and wants to fuse them together and there's no real true uh, uh, truth to hold on to. It's all just sort of hodgepodge, kind of find whatever fits for you. We live in a culture that is opposed to the gospel. There are many things that, that can tempt us to add to or subtract from the gospel. And they can be subtle. They can be subtle. And this is the second question I want us to ponder as we start this study. It's, it's this, what, what lies in our culture are you tempted to believe? What lies in our culture are you tempted to believe? It could be things like, you need to be successful. Or you need to have nice things. Or you need to find yourself. Or you need to have the approval of others. Or you need to buy into this philosophy or these politics. You need Jesus plus fill in the blank. We're tempted in our culture. We're bombarded with the lies to add to or subtract from the work of Christ. That's what the Colossians were facing. That's what the culture is tempting them to. Which is why Paul writes to the Colossians, your third point today, to assure them of the work of Christ. Paul writes to the Colossians, and by extension to us today, to assure us of the work of Christ. 
You see, Paul knows the culture that they live in. He knows the confusion. He knows these temptations. And so he's calling them to remember the sufficiency of Christ in his work on the cross. And in doing so, he pins some of the most amazing and powerful descriptions of Jesus and his work that you will find in the New Testament. There's some amazing stuff in Colossians. I want to read just one passage for you right now. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Paul writes of of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is greater. Amen? Like, this is the gospel. This is our hope, church family. Jesus has done it. In him and through him, all things were created. He's before all things. He's he's the head of the church. He is preeminent. He is over all things. And through his death on the cross, he has reconciled us to him. We have peace by his blood. This is our hope. and, And this is what Paul wants the Colossians to be clear on. They have everything they need in Jesus Paul writes this in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Paul's desire is that their hearts, the church, they'd be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, Paul says we need to remember, we need to be assured of the gospel message of who Christ is and what he's done for us so that we're not deluded, that we don't fall prey to the empty deceit of our culture. Paul assures the Colossians that they have everything they need in Christ and in the hope of the gospel. They don't need to look to other philosophies, to human traditions, to worship of angels, nor to bring back the Jewish uh, religious acts of of circumcision or regulations around food and drink. He's going to address all those things. He says, Jesus' work is enough. It's finished. Jesus is greater. So this is the third question for you today. How firm is your assurance in Christ? How firm is your assurance in Christ? This is a, a, another thing I think, again, we, we're like, yeah, I'm sure, right? I believe. I know these things to be true. But again, I think it's worth us thinking a little bit deeper about this. Um, a few weeks ago, I was in Las Vegas for my brother's 40th birthday. And uh, talk about a place that is full of empty deceit, right? It is like the world capital of empty deceit. Uh, but that's where he wanted to go, and he, uh, he had a connection for a hotel deal. We played golf and watched basketball. It was a very tame Las Vegas trip. Um, but 
one night, actually the, the first night, uh, the, after the first night, that next morning, Becca called me, my wife, you know, just checking on me, make sure I was in jail or something. <laughs> and she, she asked me what, what we did last night. I was like, well, we were up till 2 a.m. talking about Jesus. And she's like, yeah, right. <laughs> Likely story. But I was like, no, we really were. We really were because one of the guys on our trip um, is struggling with his faith. And he just asked this question. He said, how sure are you guys? How sure are you that Jesus is who he said he was? That Jesus really died and rose again, that the Bible is really true. How sure are you? And it led to this great discussion and, and, and some honest reflection and admitting for, for many of us, you know, yeah, sometimes, sometimes I have doubts. Sometimes it's hard to really believe this. There's so much in our lives and our culture that pushes against it. Like, do we really believe this? But it was so cool as we talked and as we opened the word together and as we pressed in more and more, like, I, I just felt this growing assurance in me. Like the Spirit reminding me through his word and through other believers, like, yes, yes, I'm sure. i sure I have my moments of doubt and struggle, but I'm sure Jesus is who he said he was. The Bible is true. And it reminded me of how much we need his word, how much we need to be connected to him in prayer, and how much we need each other. I just want to highlight Chris Holt, Eric Holmland. Yeah, I just called you guys out. But I got to meet with both these guys this week and, and probably met with some of you others too. I don't want to leave anyone out, but I see you both here. I had conversations with both these guys this week and, and was so encouraged and reminded of the assurance I can have in Jesus. It's so good to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a, a group of ladies right now studying this book of Colossians. We have some guys doing the same thing. We want to continue to press in together, to follow Jesus together, to remind each other, point each other to the assurance we have in Jesus. We need to be reminded. We need to be firm in our faith in Christ. This leads us to the last thing that we see in the book of Colossians. Paul writes to the Colossians to call them to their identity in Christ. Paul writes this in Colossians 2. Verse 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, because of all these incredible things that Jesus has accomplished, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In this letter, we're reminded over and over, that the Christian faith does not end with simply believing the right things. We must live them out. We're called to walk in Christ. That's why Paul is going to spend the most of the, the first half of the book talking on kind of theological matters, why Jesus is greater, what he has done. And then the second half, he gets a little more practical in looking at what that means for our lives. But Paul exhorts the Colossians to remember that they've been made new in Christ so they can put to death what is earthly in them. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. 
And instead, he calls these believers to put on the new self, being made new and united together in Christ, the church. This should result in things like compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness of one another. And more than anything, in Colossians 3, 14 and 15, Paul says this, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful. Paul is gonna continually remind us to be thankful, to rejoice because of what Christ has done for us. Paul calls the church to their identity in Christ, to walk in Christ, to not look to the false truths or the wisdom of man for their identity, but to remember who they are because of what Christ has accomplished for us. So we're gonna see some specific encouragement for wives and husbands and children and parents. He'll give us some encouragement on how to work and serve as though everything we do is for God. He'll remind us that we're meant to live as one united body being knit together. Following Jesus together. This is one of our uh, core values as well as a church. Gospel identity. Gospel identity. And I think this is something we're going to see throughout the book. Uh, we define gospel identity as, as uh, a person, a disciple who finds their hope, identity, and purpose in the gospel. We are to live as people who have been transformed, just like Paul, made new. The book of Colossians is a powerful reminder that Jesus is greater. And because he is greater, he transforms how we live. So here's the final question for you as we begin this study. Where in your life? Do you need to remember that Jesus is greater? Where do you need that reminder? Again, it's easy to believe it intellectually, theologically. We know it to be true, but do we live it out? Is it reflected in our lives, in the way we, we live day to day, the way we treat others, the way we respond to difficulty? That's where our faith really shows so where do you need that reminder? Maybe it's something difficult that comes to your mind. Maybe you think of your circumstances or your relationships, a difficult relationship or your illness or your pain. Maybe you think of an addiction or a struggle, your anxiety. Maybe you need to be reminded that Jesus is greater than the things that this culture has to offer. Even some of the good things in our lives that can take a higher place than Jesus in our lives are work our money, our success, our comfort, maybe even our cookies. I got to work on that, right? We know this to be true, but do we live like it? Is Jesus greater? And if so, how does that change the way we live? This week we made some stickers. Stickers are fun, right? And I uh, don't know if you can see it here, but up on the screen as well. And, and it's just a, a, a simple question. I was a journalism major, so, you know, the staff had to explain the math equation to me. But I, I got it now, right? Jesus is greater than what? 
right? What is it in your life that you need that reminder? And so our encouragement to you, please take one of these as you go today and put it somewhere prominent. Put it somewhere you'll see it and maybe where others will see it. Because I think it's a, a little bit provocative, right? It'll, it'll, it'll maybe spark some conversation. Put it on your water bottle you take to the gym or your notebook if you take it to school or work. But where in your life do you need that reminder? Jesus is greater. Jesus is enough. I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and we're going to take communion together. And I want you to reflect on that question. Where do you need that reminder that Jesus is greater? Where do you need to see that belief show up in your life? in the way that you walk in Christ. And as we take communion, I want to go back to the end of, of that Colossians 1 reference that we looked at because this is our hope. This is our identity. This is our purpose. And this is what Paul drives home throughout this book of Colossians. Jesus has accomplished everything on our behalf. Our hope is in him. So as we take communion this morning, we're reminded of the sacrifice he made on the cross, that through his blood, we have peace and we're reconciled to God. As we take communion, as you, as you take the cracker to remember Christ's body broken for you, and you drink the juice to remember his blood shed for you on the cross, be reminded that God is a God of transformation. And he transforms us through his son and makes us new. We can rejoice. We can be thankful. And we can live differently because of it. So the worship team is going to be playing as you're ready. Spend some time to reflect, to think about that question. Where do you need that reminder that Jesus is greater? And when you're ready, you can come forward and take the elements and, and take them back to your seat. And um, you can take those when you're ready. But let's spend some time reflecting on that question and on Jesus' greatness this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have a book like Colossians to be reminded and encouraged and assured of who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross on our behalf, that you died for us, you shed your blood so that we could be made new, we could be transformed. So, Lord, as we study this book, as we process these things and pray through these things, Lord, help us uh, to set our eyes on you, to not look elsewhere for our hope or our identity or our purpose, but to look at you, Jesus. Jesus, you are the head of the body, the church. You are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In everything, you are preeminent. In you, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through you, you have reconciled all things on earth and in heaven, making peace for us by the blood of your cross. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. We pray this in your name. Amen.